Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Happy autumn to all of you folks. I hope you're enjoying your expensive pumpkin-flavored coffees and apple picking and colorful leaves and all the fun things this time of year. And thank you for joining me today. As you know, we are here every two weeks talking to environmental health and justice leaders and fellows from the Agents of Change program. Be sure to check out our website, agentsofchangeinej.org. We recently got a facelift. It is a sharp website, easy to navigate. You can learn all about our fellowship and read and listen to the incredible fellows that we work with. Just last week, Gavin Rain, a current fellow, wrote Understanding Poverty and Children's Health Before Natural Disaster Strike. It's a great piece. You can find it on the website or at ehn.org under our Special Projects tab. All right, today I'm talking to another one of these incredible folks, Dr. Carlos Gould, a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University and current Agents of Change fellow. We talk about the perpetual search for identity and the environmental justice implications of indoor biomass burning and air pollution. We also talk a little baseball and his years of playing the sport, very apt for this time of year, though my beloved Detroit Tigers are sitting at home watching the playoffs. Anyway, enjoy our conversation. All right, I am so excited to be joined by Carlos Gould. Carlos, how are you today? I'm doing well, Brian. Thanks for having me. Sure. And where are you today? Uh, I am in Albany, California in the uh, East Bay. So Carlos, you are in our third cohort and I'm I'm really excited to have you here today. And I know you come from uh, kind of my region-ish, Midwest. You come from Indiana. I always like to start by seeing how people became interested in environmental health and environmental health science. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I definitely uh, identify as a Midwesterner uh, pretty through and through. Um, and really my interest in environmental health, environmental health science um, came from just wanting to be in the environment, be outside. Uh, I hear stories of me as a, as a younger kid, and uh, that was all I ever wanted to do. If I was having a bad time, you would just put me outside and I'd be having a much better time. Um, and, uh, you know, I loved hiking. I loved exploring where I grew up outside of Bloomington, Indiana, I was pretty wooded. And so I got to just roam free. Um, And, you know, starting in elementary school, uh, science projects were, you know, uh, doing stuff like checking the water quality in nearby creeks, because it meant I could run around uh, in the woods. Um, And I sort of began to move closer towards uh, the interplay and connection between, uh, you know, us as humans and the environment uh, as I got older, I remember one distinct moment uh, was in Glacier National Park on on a uh, on a family vacation, and we stopped off, looked at the first glacier that we saw. It was amazing. I had my mind blown as this uh, you know uh, Indiana boy, uh, and then went to read the plaque, and I saw you know a picture of the glacier decades ago, and that really blew my mind. Uh, that, you know, the world was changing so much, but really still at that point, things are pretty abstract. Um, You know, and then I sort of just kept that going. I went to college and I studied environmental studies, um, which, uh, which I thought was interesting and good because it obligated me to take classes in different disciplines. 
Um, so I took, you know, courses in political science and history, chemistry, biology. Uh, I was better at some of those than others. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, I, I just really enjoyed the diversity of science um, that was happening. Uh, and then, you know, uh, after my sophomore year of college, I got linked up uh, doing some primary data collection with somebody um, in, in, uh, in Honduras. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about this later, but uh, my, uh, my mom's side of the family is Costa Rican and being in Central America was something that seemed uh, ideal. Um, and that was, you know, pretty focused on forests and how people were collecting firewood for their for their household use. Um, and that, you know, sparked uh, however long it's been, uh, seven to eight years of studying, you know, the relationship between uh, people burning biomass and, and human health and uh, household energy and, and poverty. That's great. Really came full circle from the woods of Indiana to the woods across the world. And, and this, there's a common theme I've noticed with a lot of folks on here, including myself, which is a lot of us became interested in the natural world, in the, in the trees, in the air, in the water, in the mountains, and then realized all of these uh, interplay and the intersection with human health and the environment. So I think that's very cool. And staying back in that part of your life, in your application, you mentioned trying to find your identity and often feeling like you didn't fit in regardless of kind of whatever community or group you were with. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this and perhaps how you overcame it, what worked? Yeah, um, it's a really important question uh, and I appreciate it. Um, so I mentioned uh, I'm, I'm biracial. My dad is uh, you know, white and my mom's Costa Rican and her whole family is there. Um, uh, and I think that this feeling of trying to find my identity and feeling like I didn't fit in comes from uh, feeling like I had multiple dimensions of myself that sort of jutted out into different uh, domains. And, and when I was, you know, out in a different dimension uh, of myself, be it, you know, playing sports or uh, being good at school or, uh, you know, being Latino, it, it felt like that dimension was the only dimension that, that I could be with a certain group of people. And I think that that's an experience that a lot of people uh, of color and people from historically marginalized backgrounds uh, feel. Um, I think uh, so sort of generally it's, it's a, it's a culmination. It's a multitude of experiences and situations where I felt like my uh, complete self, you know, who, who I am entirely was questioned or invalidated or unwelcome and people purposefully or not chose to recognize or push only one or two specific dimensions, depending on, you know, uh, you know that, that that's what they chose to understand. Um, and so I, a, a couple of examples are, I think, useful here um, because there's not just sort of one moment or, or anything along those lines that that sort of sums this all up. But um, so I played baseball very uh, competitively when I was younger. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Bloomington itself is pretty progressive and pretty uh, liberal, but uh, we traveled a lot to different parts of the Midwest to places where folks have less uh, progressive viewpoints, um, at least they did when I was growing up. Um, and on the baseball field, you know, as the recipient of racist comments, jabs about being Latino, especially in, in early high school, including, including on my own team, giving me offensive nicknames and forcing me into these uncomfortable positions. Or I was, my baseball skills were described in a, in a weirdly racialized way that I had good Latin hands, whatever that is supposed to mean. Um, and those moments just sort of, they, they accumulate into, into moments of 
into sort of generalized pain. At the same time, when I was younger, uh, in particular, being Latino was was weaponized against other teams because uh, because I was very good, and mostly that ended up being pretty funny. Because so I, when I was younger, my dad would shout to me from the stands in Spanish, and I can distinctly remember some tournaments where I was playing really well, and uh, you know would really psych out the other team and other parents, uh, you know, hearing somebody speak Spanish uh, and somebody, I guess, with my skin tone. Um, and so rumors would spread that I had been flown up from the Dominican Republic for, for this tournament. <laughs> and I got a kick out of that. That was pretty fun. Um, certainly that wasn't the case when we played in bigger tournaments with teams from Texas or Florida. Uh, and then later on, I lived in Mexico in my, uh, in my first year of high school. Um, and I was playing for a team down there. And again, uh, you know, quite good. And, uh, and at the end, they, they invited me to come back because I was leaving. They invited me to come back for... Uh, a Mexican national championship that is uh, to fake being Mexican uh, to play for them. Um, uh, and that, that really would have been a first uh, for me. Um, so, you know, those are the, uh, a couple of moments I think from baseball that really uh, sort of stand out. Um, and then on the academic side, uh, I, I think, and again, this is something that I think many people experience is that academic excellence gets equated to whiteness. Um, But I remember, you know, so I went to Yale and I remember when I got into Yale and in retrospect, I think a lot of what I heard was born out of jealousy from some of my peers in high school. But I remember being told two things. I remember being told first that um, my dad had gone to Yale and the only reason I got in was because I was a legacy and, you know, that I was from this uh, family that was highly educated and and, you know, had the emphasis on, on sort of whiteness there. And then others told me I got in because I was Latino, you know, via affirmative action. Um, And it was such a strange thing to have success explained uh, in those two different ways. And it was this sort of clear way in which I couldn't be one person. I couldn't be biracial Carlos, who was good at school and good at sports and whatever. I was, uh, you know, on that one hand, very privileged. uh, And on the other hand, a person of color benefiting from lack of privilege. And I think it was it was so startling to sort of feel myself uh, be one person, but viewed uh, as as something different. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, another point, and then I'll try to close up uh, here. Another point worth mentioning is that uh, most people don't know a lot about Costa Rica, and uh, Costa Ricans don't comprise a big proportion of. Uh, immigrants in the U.S. And so um, there weren't sort of Costa Rican restaurants I could go to. Uh, I The number of times uh, I have been called Mexican or Puerto Rican outnumbers the number of times somebody has remembered that I'm Costa Rican, probably 10 to 1. Um, if anything, people think of beaches and sunshine and surfing and pura vida and think uh, when I say I'm going to see family in Costa Rica, oh, that must be so amazing. Um and it is nice, but uh, it is a fundamentally different experience from, I think, that beach vacation um, that people envision and, and they're sort of, that, that's not resonating for me that, you know, so so there isn't, you know, again, it's another way in which there isn't this sort of clear group of here's, you know, here are my Costa Rican peers, here's my identity, and I'm, you know, recognized uh, sort of for being who I am. Um. And then I think you asked how I've overcome this. Um, I don't think that I have. 
uh, at least not entirely. Um, but over the years, I think I've gotten better at being more comfortable asserting that I am all of the things that I am, and I'm never not all of those things. Um, and that, I think, to me, has come down to people, uh, finding people that are like me or appreciate me for who I am and, and all dimensions of me. Um, you know, in, in college, uh, I joined uh, the Latino Cultural Center at Yale, La Casa, um, and that was a really nice experience. You know, I, I joined a backpacking group, and that was also really nice. Um, and, you know, just finding people that, that encouraged me to succeed uh, and that have similar sort of viewpoints and, and uh, you know, interests and, and moral compasses. Um, but, you know, I, I think there is still a struggle um, to feel full, you know, f- feel fully myself and, and feel like each part of myself is enough. Yeah. And I don't think you're alone in that. And, and it's a really good reminder that uh, human beings are incredibly complex and race is certainly one of these uh, complexities for you and for a lot of people. But there's also, I remember seeing um, a mentor of mine, uh, it was a, around their parents, and I remember thinking, I didn't think of this person as somebody's son. Right. <laughs> and, you know, this is somebody's son. This is also somebody's father. This is my mentor. This is a, and uh, human beings are incredibly complex and we forget about all these different dimensions. And it's, it's really, uh, it's a good reminder of that. But I have to ask, I, so I grew up a baseball player. I'm a Tigers fan. I'm also oddly a Cubs fan. Mm. Um, for reasons that will go unmentioned, <laughs> but I, I want to know if you still play and, or what is your favorite team? Uh, I don't play as much anymore, but I've got, uh, I've got a nephew who's uh, 13 and two nieces who are five and eight. Uh, and so when I get to see them, I, uh, it's a good opportunity to toss the ball around. Um, but I'm not in any, uh, softball league though. That was something that I did uh, in college and shortly after. Um, uh, I I didn't really have a strong team growing up. You know, there's there's no team all that close to to Indiana. Um, you know, the Reds. So I, I, for my birthday, we would go and see the Reds, but I never really considered myself a Reds fan. Um, and these days, being in the Bay Area, uh, it's awfully divisive uh, uh, between the A's and the Giants. Uh, as an East Bay person, um, I feel closely aligned with the A's. Uh, but my uh, my partner's mother is a very strong Giants fan, and so uh, <laughs> you know I'm not sure I'm not sure how on record we should go with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in a great place for baseball. When I think of that area, I think of wanting to be Ricky Henderson when I was a young man as a leadoff hitter. So very cool. And and sticking with this theme, before we get in, I do want to get into some of the research you're doing now. Mm-hmm. But what is a defining moment that shaped? your identity, a defining moment or event? Yeah. Um, It's also, that's a very good question and a tough one. And uh, there are many and there will continue to be more to come. Um, I think, uh, I think truthfully, this past year probably has been a a very defining moment for my identity, exposing, um, you know, just the things that is exposed in our lives in the world. Um, but I think I'll, I'll talk a, a little bit about some earlier things um, that are similar and, and really concern the ways in which my own privileges in the world have been exposed to me very directly and uh, sort of contributing to the development of a social conscience um, 
which I think is, is one of the bigger guiding forces in my life. Um, and, you know, some of that comes from my family in Costa Rica. Um, they are comparatively poor. Um, but, you know, there isn't a, a specific experience or moment where their being poor has defined who I am, but really through a lifetime of experiences and being with them and better understanding their lives and livelihoods, do I feel like I have grown a, a sort of a better appreciation for the world that we all live in. Um, and within the family, there have been some remarkably hard and painful moments uh, involving undocumented status in the United States, acute medical events, uh, and a lack of health care that really shocked the system uh, and opened my eyes to the injustices that exist in our world with respect to wealth, health, and uh, political economy. Um, so I, I think that moments around there... Um, one other moment, I, I lived in uh, Mexico again in my first year and playing baseball. Um, and I remember uh, uh, we played on Sundays and one of our star players wasn't there for one game. Um, and I learned that uh, he uh, that he had to work. Um, and I think that that was it was uh, eye opening for me that a kid my own age, 13, 14, had to work um, that uh, that he had to work on a Sunday and, and that it could get in the way of baseball. Um, something that, you know, in my experience on my elite travel teams in the Midwest, uh, not even adult jobs could get in the way of, of a game. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure that any of these moments uh, identify, uh, sort of shape my identity per se, but certainly shape the way in which I view myself my, and my place in the world and, and sort of guides my motivations to do the things that I do. Sure. Thank you for that. That would have blown my mind too. I, I was a dishwasher relatively young, but if I got in the way of baseball, <laughs> I was not there. So that I that that I uh, I definitely relate to that. So you mentioned earlier your current research looking at uh, burning biomass. So a bulk of it's focused on the global energy poverty and indoor air pollution. Can you tell me a little bit about this intersection of these two issues and why that became your focus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, for many, they're they're one and the same. Um, so uh, global energy poverty here, you know, generally refers to having a lack of access to clean or uh, modern form of energy, generally gas, uh, electricity, but also uh, alcohol fuels, those that, you know, burn cleanly at the source or don't burn at all in the case of electricity. Um, for many, I think this means, uh, you know, a lack of electricity, sort of grid electrification. Um, and that certainly remains a major problem. Uh, in many parts of the world and brings with it tremendous issues. Um, but my focus has been more so on burning firewood uh, and other polluting fuels like charcoal, agricultural residues, or, or dung cakes for household cooking and heating needs. Um, and you can imagine sort of a campfire in the middle of your kitchen or the middle of your living room or even your bedroom. Um, it's going to produce a lot of smoke uh, and you're going to inhale a lot of smoke. And, you know, that's how uh, you know, about one in three of us around the world meet their daily household energy needs, um, mostly in low and middle income countries and in poor, rural and marginalized areas of those countries. Um, and that number, you know, uh, about two and a half billion people is going to remain about the same uh, as it has for the last couple decades, absent sort of uh, paradigm changing global investments. Um, so it's a, a big problem. Uh, and my interest here came, uh, you know, really from that moment uh, in my sophomore year of college, um, where my goal was to try to do something in Latin America. 
uh, and something related to forests. And what I ended up doing is, um, you know, talking to people in Honduras about where they got their firewood from um, to try to better understand whether their firewood collection was causing any environmental degradation um, or, uh, you know, sort of why they chose to do things in the way that they did. Um, and so I walked around with folks, I interviewed a lot of folks, and I got to better understand, um, you know, the use of biomass and the continued use of biomass uh, in what it meant to households. And what really sort of opened my eyes was one, uh, burning biomass inside a home is very smoky. Uh, and, you know, I've read about it, uh, but there's a difference between reading about it and doing an interview with tears coming down your face. Um, and that it's really just a, it, it, that, that people were using firewood because it was what they had to do, that there was no real other option, that gas or electricity wasn't a viable choice, either because of money or because it really didn't exist in the region. Um, and, and I felt like uh, it, it really opened my eyes to just how rational uh, the choices are uh, that people are making. What's something that people in the U.S. about, whether it's about air pollution or burning biomass, what's something that most of us don't think about that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think it's twofold. Um, one is that the problem is gigantic. You know, I, I mentioned it's two and a half billion people. It's a lot of air pollution. Um, and folks that are burning biomass inside their homes have, uh, you know, somewhere between five and 20 times our typical air pollution exposure, even upwards, uh, e even higher than that. Um, and it leads to a really, really large burden of disease. Um, I think between three and 4% of the overall global burden of disease and premature mortality. And in low and middle income countries, it's around 10%. Um, and this is now sort of today, and that's with large declines since 1990. Um, so I think the first thing is that the problem is big. Uh, and the second thing is that it's rational, you know, uh, that using biomass for cooking, producing all of this air pollution exposure is the best or only option that people have. Um, and I think that sort of uh, we might get this picture of people that are uninformed or focused on um, the, the smoky flavor or, or maintaining their tradition. But that really isn't the case, I think, for 99 percent of biomass use and um you know, the fact that there just isn't gas uh, or that people can't afford enough gas to use. Um, I think the lack of choice and the fact that this is rational, I think, is something that um, is important to, to sort of hammer home and uh, to make sure that people sort of appreciate what poverty and marginalization is doing here. How much of this can be ascribed to lack of, say, a grid, a centralized grid, um providing electricity or providing gas lines to some homes in uh, some of these countries? Yeah, I think a, a very large portion of it. Um, you know, electricity is a really great uh, potential cooking fuel and heating fuel. Um, and I think in the future, you know, we will all strive to, uh, you know, be electrifying our households based on renewable energy. Um, but that's probably not going to happen in the, in the near future for many. And, you know, uh, the, the most viable clean burning fuel is liquefied petroleum gas, um, which, you know, comes in a 15 kilogram cylinder, um, might be sort of akin to the thing that you might have in your backyard for a gas grill. Uh, and that's great because those cylinders are very 
uh, robust and you can throw them on the back of a truck or a motorcycle and you can bring them anywhere uh, and they don't need that grid. Um, uh, so I think that that sort of decentralized option is is the sort of middle ground before we get into piped gas. Um, but piped gas will make things much easier. So you've taken this research focus to Ecuador now, including a focus on children's health. Why Ecuador? And how does the children's health aspect of your research fit into this? Yeah, um, great question. Um, so uh, over the past uh, decades, uh, there have probably been a billion dollars invested in making clean fuels uh, more available around the world in in uh, India, Ghana, Cameroon, per- Peru, um, all over the world with the goal of improving health, protecting local environments, and enhancing socioeconomic development. Um, but these changes take a really, really long time. Um, and so understanding the potential impacts of a clean burning fuel uh, that displaces biomass is not all that well understood. And we won't really know for a, a number of years. Um, so given that uh, Ecuador, where since the 1970s, there have been uh, really big subsidies on gas, uh, which has led to uh, a transition from almost everybody in the 1970s using firewood for cooking to now almost everybody using gas for cooking. We get to see this sort of worked out example of what the world might look like in these countries that are promoting clean fuels now, you know, some uh, 20, 30, 40 years in the future after everybody has been using gas after, uh, you know, uh, uh, as people are accustomed to it, as the cylinder circulation models and and networks are developed. Um, And so these sort of early investments in making gas affordable and available um, you know, give us really special insights uh, as a sort of case study. Um, and children's health uh, is, is really a focus because household air pollution, the the burning of biomass uh, for household energy needs, it's the leading cause of, of uh, premature death for children at the age of five, uh, specifically via pneumonia and lower respiratory infections. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, following the burden of disease uh, approach. Um, Household air pollution, uh, like air pollution, affects a number of health outcomes. Um, But I think children in particular, you know, there's, uh, those impacts are so severe and so big and so in play such a big role in poor children's health um, that it's hard to ignore them. Have you spent some time down there? I have. Uh, it's really been great to, uh, you know, go down there and work with my collaborators um, in, in Quito and, and in other parts of Ecuador. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've done a lot of primary data collection. So getting to travel around to different parts of the country, not as much as I would have liked, especially with the pandemic, uh, sort of canceling a couple of trips. Um, but yeah, I, I really do enjoy the country. And that is certainly a nice benefit. Uh, of, of my focus on Ecuador is getting to be there. So this is perhaps anecdotal, but it seems to me that most media coverage of air pollution um, focuses on the outdoor. And I will say that ehn.org is guilty of this too. Uh, we, we, we often focus on uh, traffic and industry, and I think it's probably a U.S. bias. So when it comes to news on global energy poverty, indoor air pollution, what stories aren't being told and where and how could the media improve? Yeah, um... I think you're right. Uh, And I think one thing for me that uh, a a colleague and mentor of mine 
told me at one point is that, you know, uh, air pollution uh, is just uh, air pollution, that when you breathe in polluted air, it doesn't matter where it's taking place. And sometimes it might be useful to just to frame our problems in, turn of, in terms of air pollution exposure. Um, but, you know, a focus on ambient air pollution, I think, comes uh, at least in large part from, you know, government regulation of outdoor air, leading to monitoring of outdoor air, leading to knowledge about the outdoor air. And, and what happens indoors is comparatively less well known, um, partly, you know, because of the challenges of data collection. Um, but there is a, a strong relationship between uh, the outdoor air and the indoor air. Uh, you know, when you think about building infiltration and, uh, you know, things along those lines. But there's also a relationship between uh, what happens indoors and what happens outdoors. And in some parts of the world, in some regions, um, like northern India, um, burning biomass for household needs can be the, the sort of single greatest uh, contributor to outdoor air pollution. Um, and so there really is a, a major interplay uh, between indoors and outdoors. Um, when it comes to sort of news on global energy poverty, uh, air pollution exposure, the attendant health impacts, I think one thing uh, that the media can improve on is this focus and, and sort of point and stance that I and some others have been moving towards, which is that poor people don't require poor solutions. Um, and I think that's a that's a phrase uh, that I think has been used before. Um, but, you know, in, in my field for decades, the focus on making cooking cleaner and improving health focused on saying, you know, people are going to be burning biomass. Let's try to make biomass burning a little bit cleaner, um, you know, through a, a stove that improves combustion efficiency uh, so that, you know, it produces less air pollution exposure or, or vents the stove's uh, uh, emissions outdoors. Um but from and, and from the mid 2000s to the mid uh, 2010s and, and before then, there was a lot of investment and high profile investment um, in these, you know, so-called uh, improved or advanced biomass burning stoves. Um, but the results have been uh, or were disappointing. Um, they weren't taken up uh, very much. Uh, they weren't used exclusively. Many of them broke um, in concert with sort of in in the actual field minimal efficiency gains. Um, and as a result, they, 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 there isn't really solid evidence that any of them improved uh, health. Um, and so the reporting on this in general academic and, and narrative was pretty down, basically calling these, you know, tens of millions of dollars invested in these things a, a failure. Um, and I think one really hard aspect of this is that it felt uncertain who, who failed or what failed. Um, and in some cases, I think cooks were blamed that they were the ones, you know, not using this health saving device that we had provided to them. Um, and that was, that's really hard. Uh, and um, and for whatever reason, you know, these narratives resulted in disappointment and not with the recognition that they're pointing to a different option, uh, which is this other paradigm uh, called uh, make the clean available in the words of, of the late Kirk Smith. Um, and that means we have clean options. Uh, I use a gas stove. I have a microwave. I have a toaster oven. Um, you know, uh, in general, those are uh, low emissions options. Uh, and, you know, that's the way it is for everybody I know. 
Um, and if we're going to build housing around here, frankly, there really aren't any other options. You know, this is, you know, clean burning fuels are the only accepted thing in high income such settings. So why are we expecting poor folk to accept something different, accept a poor solution? Um, and, you know, these options can, this, this sort of argument can be made for water and sanitation um, that uh, reliably piped water uh, that's been treated is directly delivered to households. Sanitation facilities offer uh, a safe way to manage waste and, and privacy and security. You know, these are options that we can't really imagine a better option. Um, so why are we, you know, expecting that poor people get poor solutions? And it comes down to money, um, that these modern solutions require major, heavy, upfront investments. Uh, and they may need, you know, consistent and large subsidies like for cooking gas, um, but the benefits really could be tremendous, providing, uh, you know, dignity uh, uh, for people, um, improving health, reducing health care costs, uh, improving socioeconomic uh, standards, um, and, you know, potentially offsetting these large upfront costs over long lifetimes. So if we take the media out of this and, and think about how much power scientists have now to kind of directly reach um, audiences and, and other peers... Oh, how do you see science communication on this topic or anything you're working on kind of fitting into your broader work moving forward? And, and what role does social media and social media engagement play? Yeah, um, definitely something I'm still trying to figure out and something that uh, I'm appreciative is, is discussed so frequently uh, with agents of change. Um, you know, it, science communication comes in a bunch of different forms, uh, conferences, academic papers, presentations to colleagues, presentations to government officials. Uh, discussions with community members and participants. And I've, you know, done all of those things. And I think something that feels very important is that they they all require different ways of communicating and they all have their different purposes and, and you communicate what you need to communicate based on what your purpose is. Um, I think when it comes to science communication, uh, one thing that I really think about, which I, I it perhaps isn't exactly what you're asking um, but I think is the place where I would like to sort of make sure that I do the most effort is to make science more accessible um, to uh, the younger generation. Um, I think for me, uh, for a long time, science was uh, this sort of mythical, abstract, opaque thing that only uh, the most brilliant people in the world who had been struck by a bolt of lightning uh, to have a brilliant idea that they were the only people that could do uh, science. I was just some kid from Indiana that didn't really know what they wanted to do, didn't have any special ideas. Um, you know, I never really felt like I could do science. Um, and then all of a sudden, like four years into my PhD, I realized I was doing science and that was pretty cool. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, what I want to do in science communication, uh, generally speaking, is to make the process of knowledge generation more transparent, to make it more obvious to talk through how I ended up asking this question, how I decided to design a project, how I worked through the development of data collection procedures, you know, what it means to collect data. You know, these are things that I, I really didn't know uh, how to do until all of a sudden I was, I was doing it. Um, and it, it was all sort of very fuzzy. And I, I want to, you know, as much as possible in my research and in my teaching to, to center the people that are doing research um, and, and their stories and, and how their science came to be. And, uh, you know, of course, I, I want to make sure that younger folks know that people that look like me with a name like Carlos can do science. And it's really 
one of my biggest goals and it's always a, a real joy when I get to do that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that I think is for me, one of the most important aspects, uh, about science communication. Um, yeah. I totally agree. If someone would have told me even, even in early college that I could study fisheries, could study street, you know, stream ecology, I would have done that in a heartbeat. I just thought you went to business school or something. You just ended up in an office somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, much the same thinking uh, that you have. And, it, and the way, not to not to take a dark turn here, but I think about our country right now, and I think more transparency and more focus on how the science is done would do a lot of us a lot of good. Because I think what we're seeing is a lot of misunderstanding about what quote unquote science is. Um, I'm thinking mask mandates. Yeah, that the masks absolutely. don't work. Why are you Why are you telling us now? And uh, science is, as you very well know, is a process of gathering knowledge and then making your best, um, you know, uh, your best conclusion after you've gathered this knowledge. But the knowledge gathering doesn't stop. Um, so I think more transparency and more understanding of that would just do our country and our world such a such a service. I think so too, and I think uh, I think it's fun. Um, to do science, to think through problems, to, to, to work on things and to collect the data and, and try to figure out what it all means. It's all, um, you know, this sort of story and problem solving that happens. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I think younger folks, uh, I hope that they are able to see that um, and can appreciate it for what it is. I always tell young reporters, I think journalism plays a role here that don't just ask about the conclusions, you know, in your case, don't just ask about the children's health data in Ecuador. Ask what it looked like. What was it like being down there? What were what were the homes like? What did the what did the families tell you? Um, I, I just think that helps demystify it. And as storytellers, on my side of things, we can go a long way too in bringing the science to life and not just regurgitating data and conclusions. Um, so I think it kind of there's a little bit of responsibility on both sides there. Yeah. And so. Carlos, last question. I usually ask people about the last book they read for fun, but you let me know you've been pursuing some other hobbies. So we are going to do things a little different. Tell me about disc golf, even though, side note, I know a lot about it because I'm pretty damn good. And your love of crossword puzzles. These are your two hobbies. How how do these things come about? Yeah. Um, crosswords uh, came about uh, just before I started my PhD. And I think uh, you know, I, I had a friend that did them. I thought, I thought that looked pretty cool. It was again, a sort of thing where I thought he was, uh, just incredible for being able to do them. Cause I didn't know anything <laughs> about crosswords. He, you know, he pulled out the New York times every morning and he did the crossword in pen. And I thought, no way. Uh, and I started small with the like mini crossword, but really what happened, uh, with the crosswords is I rode the subway every day, uh, in New York. And, uh, and I, I had some time to kill where I didn't always have the internet and I didn't love uh, reading, uh, you know, my, my papers and, and whatnot on the subway. And so I did the crossword every day um, and I got better and better. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, similar, similar to science, uh, crossword uh, completing is, is a learned skill. Uh, and I didn't realize that at the time. Um, that it's not just knowledge. It's, it's also an understanding of how it works. Um, and so, uh, I think, you know, for the last five years or something, I've done the crossword pretty much every day. 
uh, and it's really a, a wonderful ritual. And and on the weekends, I do it with my uh, with my partner and whenever we can with friends. Um, so that's that's a really wonderful part of my life. And and disc golf, uh, I've been playing for about three years uh, or so, and uh, I you know, having played sports growing up and, and being good at sports, I think what I really love about disc golf, in addition to the fact that I get to be outside and around here, the courses are are beautiful. Um, it's something that, you know, I can, I, I really have to focus on a lot uh, and I can get better at it. And the combination of having to focus a lot and, and, and being able to get better at something really is a, a winning, a, a winning thing for me. Um, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I really, I really love it. And I, I try to get my friends and, and family out there as much as possible. Excellent. Yeah. And the difference between, at least here, I know the difference between golf and disc golf, there are many, but often you don't have to pay, oh, yeah. which is very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Go out in the woods and enjoy the course. So Carlos, it sounds like if we ever do an uh, agent's retreat, we need to catch a ball game and throw the disc around. We absolutely do. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed this. Uh, And thanks for joining me. Have a great day. Thank you very much. All right. That brings another week to a close, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carlos. That was a lot of fun, especially talking baseball. I did not expect that. If you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it. Help us out. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes of this podcast. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of our team. Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniker, Hannah Seo, and Aaron Gomez. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thanks for joining us. We'll hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join us next time where we will feature a dynamic duo in the world of environmental health. Doctors Max Ung and Tracy Woodruff from the UCSF Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment who will talk about how to use science to impact policy on environmental chemicals. Have a great week, folks.